0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, that passage we just read. Uh, we're going to look at a few other passages sort of en route to that one, um, but we'll get there to Luke chapter 6 here in just a bit. Uh, If you have been around our church family for really more than a year or two, uh, you know that at the beginning of each calendar year, we like to do a teaching series that we call Formation. And as the slide indicated, I think a moment ago, uh, it is a series all about the art and the science of how we change as human beings. And part of the reason that we do this series at the beginning of each calendar year uh, is actually really strategic. It's that it lines up with a focus that I think a lot of people tend to have each January at the beginning of the year anyway, namely that of New Year's resolutions. So uh, just out of curiosity, uh, show of hands, how many of you are doing the New Year's resolutions thing this year? Cool, uh, I get this is risky, but keep your hand up if you'd willing, be willing to share with us what your New Year's resolution is. A little bashful to do that for That's fine, that's understandable. Uh, I'll share with you a couple of mine. Uh, so one of my New Year's resolutions for 2023 uh, is that I personally want to spend more time outside. I have just realized uh, recently we live in what I'm sure, in in my unbiased opinion, is one of the best places in the country to live in terms of the outdoors, and I just realized I spend a whole lot of time indoors for having lived in that part of the country, so I just want to spend more time outdoors. Now, that might be affected by how many more single-digit days we have, like we have over the past few weeks, Uh, but at some point this year, I want to start spending more time outside. Another one I have uh, for our family specifically, I should probably share this with Anna, my wife, since I don't think I've told her this, but this is a a New Year's resolution for our family as a whole is I want us to eat more meals around the dinner table. Uh, We kind of do the standard modern American thing, which is we eat a lot of meals like just around the coffee table in our living room. Maybe there's an episode of Bluey on TV because that's what my kids watch all of the time, uh, which doesn't exactly lend itself to a lot of good conversation <laughs> among our family. Uh, and so I just want to eat more meals around the dinner table. And so that's one of my goals for this year as well. I feel like that's just a good thing to pursue as a family. And so those are a couple of mine. Um, I'm sure you have some too, those of you that are participating in the New Year's resolution thing. But here's the thing with New Year's resolution, uh, generally... Resolutions that we make have something to do with wanting to become different versions of ourselves, right? They all have to do with the idea that we all want to change. They are attempts at us becoming slightly different, slightly better versions of ourselves. So maybe we want to become a more physically healthy version of ourselves. Maybe we want to become more emotionally healthy versions of ourselves. Maybe uh, we want to become less stressed out, less anxious, less impatient versions of ourselves. Or you fill in the blank, whatever your resolution is. But resolutions generally work from that premise. They, They work from the premise that all of us, it, it, to one degree or another, want to change. We all want to become slightly different versions of ourselves, and believe it or not, that is actually a goal that we share with the scriptures. The, the Bible also emphasizes over and over again the importance of change, transformation. So take a look with me, for instance, on the screen at a couple different passages that talk about this idea. First, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, and we also, we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed, in other words, are being changed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Then there's Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed, be changed, By the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the word transformed in both of those passages we just read is the Greek word metamorpho. It's where we get the word metamorphosis, as in the process of changing from one form of something to the next. So evidently, the Bible is a fan of change. For starters, the change that we experience when we go from someone who doesn't know and follow Jesus to someone who does, that's really important. That's the first step, right? But really what these passages that we just read refer to is the change that happens after that decision. They're actually talking about the constant transformation that we experience as we grow to become more and more like Jesus. That is the goal for every single follower of Jesus on this planet, to look more and more like him, like Jesus, with each passing day. That's what we're after. In other words, the goal of becoming a Christian isn't just to punch our ticket to heaven and wait around until we go there. It's to become more like Jesus in every single facet of our life. That's what we're aiming for as followers of Jesus. It's to become, to use Jesus' language, disciples. Look at how Jesus puts this a little bit earlier in Luke chapter six. This one we'll put up on the screen. This is verse 40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. That's our goal as as disciples of Jesus. We want to become more and more like our teacher, Jesus. And and I want you to notice this because it's important. Us being changed, being transformed as followers of Jesus, it's not just important for us individually. It's actually important for the good of the world itself. So Dallas Willard, one of my personal favorite Christian authors, he put it like this in one of his books. I think it's a really good way of putting it. The greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That is what the world needs not just a bunch of people who simply identify as Christians, but a bunch of people who live as disciples of Jesus, who have been changed and transformed by Jesus in every facet of their life as a result. So all of this leads us to the question, how do we change? How does that transformation actually happen? If that's what God wants from us, and assuming that we also want what God wants, how does that process of change actually occur? What does metamorpho actually look like in practice? That's what this series that we do every year, every January, is all about. And if you've been around for previous iterations of this series, you know that we have primarily answered that question how does change happen? With one word we change through our habits. We change through our habits. To unpack that idea so you can see where it's coming from, let's take a look at our passage in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 47. Let's read this passage one more time. This is Jesus speaking. He says this. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug deep, "'and laid the foundation on rock. When, "'When a flood came, the torrent struck that house "'but could not shake it because it was well-built. "'But the one who hears my words "'and does not put them into practice "'is like a man who built a house on the ground "'without a foundation. "'The moment the torrent struck that house, "'it collapsed and its destruction was complete.'" So in this passage, Jesus is using the metaphor, obviously, of a house, of building a house. He's using it as a way of talking about the types of lives that people lead. So in the story, there are two types of houses. There's the well-built house and the poorly built house. And in the passage, there is only one difference given between the two houses. Did you catch what it was? The the person with the poorly built house, it says, is the person who only hears Jesus' words. All they do is hear, while the person with the well-built house, he hears Jesus' words and, quote, puts them into practice. So it would seem that to Jesus, based on this passage, the difference between health and unhealth and maturity and immaturity, between lasting faith and evaporating faith, the difference between all of those things is just one idea practice, which means, and I want you to see this from the passage, the difference between those two houses, those two people in the story, wasn't a matter of knowledge or of information. It wasn't that one of them knew things about Jesus that the other one didn't know. Jesus plainly says in the passage that both people heard the same message. They heard the same information. They ingested the same bit of information, But apparently, according to the passage, information about God alone will not change you as a disciple of Jesus. Information does not automatically lead to transformation. If you want to be changed and transformed as a disciple of Jesus, you will need more than just information. You will need practice. And that phrase that Jesus uses in Luke chapter six puts them into practice is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It implies intentional, proactive, and especially repetitive action. Becoming like Jesus is not just about what you know. It's not even just about what you do once. It's about what you choose to do over and over and over again in your life. That is what creates change in your life. That is what forms your character as a follower of Jesus. That's what makes you more and more like Jesus, not just what you know, but what you put into practice, regular practice. To put it a slightly different way, A central piece of how we change as followers of Jesus and just as human beings is through our habits, the the things that we choose to do over and over again in our life. So there's a guy by the name of James K.A. Smith. He wrote a brilliant book about all of this quite a few years back called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And you could probably sum up the entire point of his book with this one sentence from it. We'll put it on the screen. The things we do do things to us. The things we do do things to us. There is a direct relationship in our lives as followers of Jesus between repetition and formation. We become the people we are largely based on the things that we choose to do over and over again. So each year, beginning in January, we usually take a month or two to focus on one particular habit or practice that has the ability to make us more like Jesus by our participation in it. Historically, followers of Jesus have used words like spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices or the practices of Jesus to talk about these things. But whatever you want to call them, that's not as important. What's important for you to know is that these are things that we do repeatedly in our lives that can transform us over time into the image of Jesus. And that at its core is why we participate in these practices together. Not because we think we're better than anybody else, not because we think God loves us more when we participate in them, not any of that. We do them simply because we want to become more like Jesus, and we know that a central piece of how that will happen is through our habits, through practices like these. So, this is year five of our formation series. We've been doing this for five years now. Uh, in years past, we have looked at practices like prayer, Bible reading, Bible study, rest, and then last year we looked at mission. This year, we will be taking an extended look at the practice of, drum roll, or not, it's fine, drum roll, fasting. <laughs> that has to be. One of the only times in the history of the world that people have wooed for the practice of fasting. It's just not something that garners a lot of excitement for people, right? And we can be honest about that. Maybe some of us are interested in it, and if you're interested in it, great, you've got a head start on the series over the next month. But most of us would, would probably not say that fasting makes the top 10 list of our desired activities, Right? Like We don't just sit around going, you know what might be fun in 2023 is if I just didn't eat for a little while. (laughs) I just don't know that many people are currently thinking that. I I think fasting kind of occupies this this weird space in our minds as followers of Jesus where we all know at least loosely what it is. We've got a general idea of what fasting is, and at the same time, I think most of us find ourselves somewhere between disinterested in it and completely opposed to it right? Just if we're entirely honest about this particular practice. I think fasting is probably one of the least understood and and therefore least practiced habits or, or spiritual disciplines in the life of followers of Jesus today. So this morning, I want to try and help with all of that. As we start out this series all about fasting, I want to try to speak to three questions that we might have in our minds about fasting. And hopefully this will help us understand it a little bit more, at least enough to get us until next week. Um, First, I want to answer what is fasting? Talk about what it is. Second, I want to talk about why we should fast. And then third, I want to ask when should we fast? What is fasting? Why should we fast? When should we fast? We'll spend a little bit of time on each of these, and then we'll talk a little bit at the end about how we want to practice this as a church family in this series. So first, let's answer the question, what is fasting? So in order to answer that, I I think it might be helpful to first rule out a couple things that fasting isn't, just to sort of narrow it down a little bit. So first, I think it's important to know that fasting isn't dieting. Fasting isn't dieting. Now, I understand that could be confusing since the term is sometimes also used to talk about forms of dieting. For instance, intermittent fasting is all the rage right now, uh, but at least best I can tell, it's not all the rage because people all over the world are just really wanting to become more like Jesus and they want to give intermittent fasting a shot. Uh, I don't think that's the reason most people are participating in it. The reason it's all the rage right now is because nutritionists and medical professionals are saying that it can be one of the healthier forms of dieting. But I want you to understand that while the word used, fasting, is the same word, that's not really what fasting is or what fasting is for in the scriptures. It's actually very different from that. Secondly, fasting is not simply abstaining. Fasting is not abstaining. So over the years, some Christians have sort of expanded the word fasting to refer to just any time that we abstain from certain enjoyable things. So a lot of Christians do this uh, during the Lenten season leading up to Easter. They'll say that they are fasting from things like Netflix or TV or social media or even specific types of food like sweets or soda or alcohol, something like that. And just to be clear, that is a great thing for followers of Jesus to do. I think that's awesome that followers of Jesus do that. I think it can be really, really helpful in our discipleship to Jesus. But at least historically speaking, Christians have not called that practice fasting. They've called that abstaining. Fasting, biblically speaking, has to do with food. And not just specific types of food, but food in general. So with those two things out of the way, let's talk about what fasting is. I'll give you a definition that we'll kind of utilize throughout this series that we're in. Fasting, according to the scriptures, is the practice of abstaining from all food and non-water beverages during a predetermined length of time for spiritual purposes. I'll give you just a moment to write that down. It's the practice of abstaining from all food and non-water beverages during a determined length of time for spiritual purposes purposes. So fasting is when you go without food and without any drink besides water, which I hesitated to say this because you guys are going to hold me to it, that would include coffee. Just I'm sorry, I felt the collective groan in the room as I said that, but that would include coffee. So you're abstaining from food and any drink besides water, for a predetermined length of time. Most frequently in the Bible, it seems like it's from anywhere between 12 and 24 hours, somewhere in that time frame. And it's done for spiritual purposes. In other words, it's done uh, for something more Godward in orientation than dieting or losing weight. Those things are great, but that's not really the purpose of fasting in the Bible. Now, there's a little bit of variation to it in the scriptures if you just follow the theme of fasting from beginning to end of the Bible. So occasionally, we'll see people abstain from food and even water, and occasionally it's for longer than 24 hours. But best we can tell, those types of fasting are extremely rare in the scriptures. They seem to be for really, really specific scenarios. The majority of the time, it's consuming nothing except water, and it's for approximately 12 to 24 hours. That's what fasting is. With that established, let's answer the next question, which is why should we fast? Why should we fast? Here's the main reason I would give you for why followers of Jesus should fast because the Bible assumes that we will. Because the Bible assumes that we will. Now, I've chosen that language there very strategically. I've heard some people say, and I've heard this fairly recently, I've heard some people say, well, the Bible never actually commands followers of Jesus to fast. And while that's technically true, it's also a little bit deceiving, to put it that way. Because while the Bible never tells us to fast outright, it very much seems to assume that we will do it. I'll give you two examples to demonstrate what I mean from the Gospel of Matthew. You can turn with me to them. We'll also have them up on the screen if you'd rather follow along there. First, let's look at Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples during the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, beginning in Matthew 6, verse 16. When you fast, notice Jesus says when, not if, but when, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. In other words, they've already got what they wanted, which was the attention of other people. But when you fast, followers of Jesus, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So the purpose of this passage is obviously to caution the disciples about wrong motives for fasting, not to do it hypocritically, in other words. But notice in what we just read that despite the inherent dangers of fasting hypocritically, Jesus at no point chooses to reject the practice altogether. He could have just said to his disciples, okay guys, here's the deal, fasting is a totally optional practice, and since the temptation is to become self-righteous about it, let's just not worry about it. It's not really necessary to begin with. Jesus could have said that, but he didn't. In fact, instead, he gives the disciples instructions on how they should fast, how they should go about it. Jesus assumes that his followers will fast, and because of that, they will need instruction on how to do it well, how to do it properly. So the assumption by Jesus is that his followers will indeed participate in fasting, at least periodically. But even if that passage doesn't do it for you, take a look with me at this next one. This is Matthew chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verses 14 and 15. Here's what it says. Then John's disciples came and asked him, him being Jesus here, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. So if you just stop there, it might seem like it contradicts the point that we're making this morning, but I want you to keep reading. Jesus answered them, how can the guest of the bridegroom, which in the metaphor is the disciples, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he, Jesus, is with them? The time will come, i.e. in the future, when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then, and notice this next phrase, then they will fast. So Jesus responds by saying that his disciples aren't currently fasting at this moment in the biblical storyline because he, Jesus, is currently with them in flesh and blood. He's physically present with them. But Jesus says the time will come when he will no longer be physically present with his disciples in that way. And once that happens, Jesus says they will fast. So let me ask, what era are you and I in? Are we currently in the era where Jesus is physically present with us or after he's gone away to be with the Father? After, right? So according to Jesus, does that mean we shouldn't be fasting or that we should? It means that we should. We live in the era that Jesus is talking about, that he's forecasting in this very passage. Jesus assumes that after he goes to depart and be with the Father, his disciples will, at least periodically, fast. Fast. So here's my point. While there may not be a command, at least strictly speaking, in the New Testament that followers of Jesus should fast, it sure does sound like Jesus himself assumes that we will. So unless there's a good reason to say that we shouldn't do the thing that Jesus assumes his followers will do, it seems like we should at least periodically fast if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. So all of that leads us to our final question, which is practically, when should we fast? When should we fast? If you're tracking with all of this so far, I think the natural next question to ask is when? Like do I just wake up tomorrow morning and go today feels like a good day to not eat and do it that way? And then there's the next question, the related question of frequency. So how often should I fast? Is, is it like a once a week thing? Is it once a month, once a quarter, once a year, once a lifetime? Like when, how often do I fast as a follower of Jesus? How often should a follower of Jesus participate in it? And here's where I'm going to give you what probably feels like an unhelpful answer, especially if you are a rule follower like me. It depends. It depends. Best I can tell that I've seen in studying the Bible for a while on this topic, there's nowhere in the Bible that prescribe a certain frequency for fasting. Rather, here's how the Bible seems to answer the question: "When should we fast? When a situation in life is deserving of it? When a situation in life is deserving of fasting? Fasting is not so much something that we choose to do out of the blue, as it is something we feel compelled to do in response to a moment or a situation that is profound enough for it. So a- an analogy might help here. Imagine that I came up to you one day. I just bought I just bought the first car that I've ever owned in my life, and I come up to you and I say, "Hey, um, there's a small tire in the trunk of my new car." It's a spare tire. Can you tell me when I should use that tire? You might be a little bit confused by the question, right? But because the obvious answer to when do you use a spare tire for your car is when you need to use it right? That's what a spare tire is. A spare tire is an as-needed type of item. You don't just wake up one day and go, you know, I, I really need a little more adventure in my life. What if I put one tire that is smaller than the other three on the front of my car and just see how it goes for a day? That's, that's not really how spare tires work, right? They're an as-needed type of item. You use a spare tire when you need to use a spare tire, when the situation you're in prompts you to use it or necessitates that you use it. I think it's actually fairly similar with fasting. And just personally, I wonder if this could explain the lack of biblical instruction around when and how frequently we should fast. We just don't get that instruction anywhere. In fact, I think if you asked a New Testament disciple of Jesus, hey, when should I fast, or how often should I fast, I wonder if they would actually look at us a little bit confused at that question. Because I think they would tell us, You should fast when you need to fast. We should fast when a situation arises in our life or our world that prompts us to take that response. Now, obviously, part of the problem with saying it that way is that I would imagine, at least right now in this room, the majority of us don't ever feel the need to fast. We don't ever feel like we're in a situation where fasting is the proper response. So let's ask what types of situations in the Bible should prompt us to fast. So according to the Bible, there are actually quite a few different situations that would lead someone to this type of response, potentially. So I put together a list for you. Uh, I'm going to go through these really, really quickly. I wouldn't even attempt to write them down if you're taking notes, but these slides will be up online earlier, later today when we post this sermon. So here is at least a fairly comprehensive list of situations in the Bible that prompted people to fast. When we're grieved by our sin, when we're grieved by the sin of others, when we encounter God in profound ways, when we are in mourning, when we want to worship, when God seems absent, when we know temptation is coming, when we need God's help, when we witness injustice, when we need clarity or wisdom, when we're making important decisions, when someone is sick, when someone dies, when we want to change God's mind, when we are fearful, when we want to humble ourselves. And there probably are a few that I missed. The Bible is a big book. I don't know if you've read a little bit of it. It's a very long book. But I think that's at least a fairly comprehensive list of situations that prompted people to fast as a response in the Bible. So I I show you that list to help give you some context for this practice, but, but also to show you that while fasting is indeed a response to a situation deserving of fasting, like we said earlier, There also are apparently quite a few situations that fit in that category, according to the Bible, right? I mean, y'all saw that list. That's a lot of different situations that would apply to fasting, would prompt people to fast. In fact, based on that list we just read, I would go so far to say that at any given moment in our lives as followers of Jesus, there is probably at least one good reason for us to fast, right? Right? I, mean, I don't know about y'all, I think I hit like four or five of those every day of my life. <laughs> so I, I think there's actually quite a few situations that would prompt, that would be fitting for us to fast in response. Again, not that you're required to respond with fasting every time something like that happens, but that you could respond with fasting in those situations. So just think about it practically with me. Just imagine some, some situations. What if the next time in your life as a follower of Jesus that you became very aware of the sin in your own heart? What if instead of just going, wow, that's really uncomfortable, on to the next thing? What if instead you chose to respond in that moment by expressing your grief and your sorrow over that sin through fasting? Now, I want you to to hear the difference, not to pay God back for your sin, not to give penance to God so that he will forgive you of your sin. We don't believe in that as followers of Jesus. That was settled on the cross, right? But simply to express your grief and your sorrow through fasting. What if occasionally that was your response to discovering sin that is in your own heart? Uh. What if the next time that you became aware of sin in the life of a a family member or a close friend that is grievous, let's say their sin is is really hurting them and it's really hurting quite a few people around them as a result, the the next time that you witnessed that and you thought to yourself, instead of going, oh wow, that's really heavy, all right, let's go out to lunch. What, What if instead of that, You you took that opportunity to fast as an opportunity to seek God's help himself on that situation or to pray for the people who are being negatively impacted by it. What if that was a moment to fast? What if the next time that a friend of yours uh, became sick or received really heavy, really devastating news, what if your response in that moment was to fast instead of just doing like we often do oh man yeah I'll pray for that and then we forget about it usually for the next three days at least until they ask for prayer again right we need to be honest about that we're forgetful people that's fine what if instead in those moments when that friend told us that heavy bit of news that they just got or that diagnosis that they just received what if we responded in that moment by fasting, expressing our grief and sorrow to God and doing what even people did often in the Old and New Testament, which is to seek God's healing for whatever that thing is. What if that was our response? What if the next time we witness some grievous injustice on the news or as we scroll through whatever social media outlet that we find out about it through, what if instead of going, wow, that's really heavy, I can't believe that's happening on the other side of the globe, and moving on to the next thing and forgetting about it, what if we responded in those moments by fasting and by seeking God's assistance on whatever that thing is going, going on on the other side of the globe? I, I wonder if fasting doesn't actually give us a category of how to respond to heavy, grievous, sacred moments in our lives that we aren't currently really dialed into, Right? I mean, I, I, we, you, we all know this. We live in the 21st century. There's distraction after distraction after distraction, most of it right at our fingertips every time we get out our phone, right? And it's just really easy for us to not sit with some of the heavy, grievous realities in our world. And I wonder if fasting doesn't actually give us a little bit of a category for that, a way of relating to God that maybe we're not aware of currently, possibly. Now, all of that said about fasting I do think we have to be careful, we have to be cautious about asking one very common question when it comes to fasting. Here's the question I think we gotta be careful about. What am I getting out of this? I think you gotta be careful about that question. Now it's a very natural question for us to ask, especially when we're considering doing something new that we've never done before, which is probably fasting for a lot of us. I think it's especially common to ask that question when we're doing something new that asks something difficult of us, like not eating. I mean, we're used to eating at least three meals a day, right, if not more in America. So I I, I think when it asks something difficult of us, it's even more common to ask that question, what am I getting out of it? The thing we want to know, oftentimes before we'll even consider doing something for the first time, is what do I get out of it? And if we choose to fast, we might even be inclined to ask that question after each time we fast, right? So after each time we break fast, we might be tempted to go, okay, what did I get out of it that time? What improved as a result? What changed as a result? How did I get become a better person as a result of that? And, it, and again, it's not a bad question to ask. It, it's a really natural question to ask. All of the spiritual disciplines and practices have tangible benefits to them, benefits that we will reap if we persist in those practices over the long haul. In fact, over the next three weeks of the series, we're actually going to talk about some of the collateral benefits of fasting, some of the things that we gain as a result of fasting. So the benefits do exist, even to something like fasting, but... I want you to realize that when the most pressing thing on our minds is the benefits of a spiritual discipline, when that is the first and most important question that we ask, I do think it risks making things like fasting into a transaction with God rather than a means to relationship with him. And that's why we have to be careful about it. We, we have to understand that the primary motivation for, for all of these practices is not the benefits that we might reap from them. That's just the icing on the cake, right? The motivation for these practices of Jesus is the God that we have a relationship with. The motivation is that we want more of him, and so we will pursue whatever we need to pursue to experience that. That is why we participate in things like fasting. Does that make sense? So if you choose to practice fasting with us during this series, I want you to do your best to resist the urge to constantly ask, what am I getting out of this? And for that matter, I would say avoid asking that question when you participate in any of the spiritual disciplines out there, right? So Bible reading, prayer, Sabbath, generosity, it's not that it's a wrong question to ask, but it does risk misunderstanding what these practices are about. And I also think, and this is important, uh, it it risks misunderstanding how these practices create change in our life. So compare the practices of Jesus, something like fasting, to something like going to the gym. So let's say it's January 1st, you've paid for a new gym membership. And later this afternoon, you wanna start the new year off, right? You slept in a little bit this morning, but that's okay, you still got the rest of the day, right? So you're gonna, you're gonna check in to that new gym that you now have a membership to this afternoon, you're gonna work out. And let's say you go in there, you haven't worked out in a few years, but you go in there and you do 30 minutes of a workout and then you walk up to the front desk and you go, hey, I, I need to talk to you about something. I, uh, I got a membership to this gym and I was under the impression that you guys are fans of physical fitness here and that I can lose weight and that I can become in better shape as a result of going to the gym. But I just felt like I should let you know, I just spent 30 minutes on the machine over there and my muscles are no bigger. Uh, I don't feel any stronger. I don't think I've lost any weight at all. In fact, I feel a little bit worse than when I walked in, to be honest with you. <laughs> And I don't think I'm in any better shape. And so I would just like for you to know as the owner of this gym, that your gym is defective. It does not work. If, if you said that to the owner of a gym, if they were patient types of people, they would explain to you gently that that is not how working out works. That, that's not what a gym does. You you don't see immediate or instant results from going to a gym. Rather, the way a gym works is that you go, you persist in going day in, day out, over the course of weeks or months or even years, and over time, you begin to see results. You begin to feel different. You begin to change. You begin to transform. You begin to become stronger. All of that stuff. I think it's actually pretty similar with the spiritual disciplines, including something like fasting. So when it comes to all of the practices of Jesus, this one included, maybe we shouldn't ask after each time that we participate in it, did I get anything out of that? And then decide whether or not to persist in it. Maybe it's better to ask instead, is this something God expects of his people? Is this something that God invites his people into for their good, and for their growth and for their transformation so that they might better represent him. And if so, how and when makes the most sense for me to participate in that as a follower of Jesus? And then we choose to persist in it day in and day out over a long period of time and then we see if God doesn't make us more like Jesus little by little as we persist in it. Does that make sense? That's the idea behind the spiritual disciplines. I get that that goes against the grain in an instant gratification culture, but that's kind of the art and science of following Jesus is that it takes place over time as we persist in it. So before we wrap up this morning, thank you guys for your patience. I know we're running a little bit long today. Before we wrap up, for those interested, I wanted to just tell you a little bit about how we thought we might practice fasting together as a church family during this series. Here's how we're gonna go about it. We have put together a PDF with some frequently asked questions about fasting online at citychurchknox.com slash fasting. We know that uh, there's just some logistical questions people have with something like fasting. So we've done our best to compile a list of those, speak to them as best we can. Uh, we know that there are considerations to make. For instance, if you uh, have certain medical disorders or if you struggle with an eating disorder or even body image issues, there's just some considerations around those things that need to take place. So we've done our best to Speak to those. We're actually going to speak specifically to the idea of body image and eating disorders in week three of the series. I got a buddy of mine uh, who that's actually part of his story, and so he's going to come teach that week um, kind of how we might think about that, if that's a part of our story or the story of someone we love. Um, so I'm really excited about that, but we've done our best to speak to all the questions we can up front, just to get you started in all of this. So feel free to go and look at that PDF. In fact, I would strongly recommend at least going through that PDF once before you decide to start fasting, especially if you're doing it for the first time. So feel free to go there, citychurchknox.com/fasting. But for the next three weeks during this series. We are gonna ask those who are interested, and again, if you're not interested, if you don't think it's a good idea for you, it's totally fine, but if you're interested, we're gonna ask those of you who are participating to pick one day each week for the next three weeks and fast. So that's no food or drink other than water for somewhere between 12 and 24 hours that day. Now, I will say uh, to this, you probably need to pick the time frame that you're doing before you start the fast uh, like, don't just, if you go and it's like 12 hours and you're like, well, I got hungry at hour 12, so it's a 12 hour fast today. Uh, maybe I'll do it that way. Uh, maybe decide beforehand uh, how long you are going to fast for, whether it's 12 hours, 24 hours, or somewhere in between, and then go for that length of time. Uh, I'll just suggest if you've never really gone without eating for 12 hours before, uh, maybe start with 12, that could be a good place to start, and then work your way up or something like that. On the other hand, if you regularly skip meals for 12 hours or close to it and it doesn't really have much effect on you at all, um, you could probably start with something higher than 12 hours. So just make the decision however you want to make it, but just some tips there on how to think about the length of time. Um, one thing that we're suggesting for those of you in life groups um, with our church is that it might be meaningful to fast for the 12 to 24 hours leading up to your life group night and then actually break fast and eat a meal together at your life group night. It could be a cool thing to do. You could even talk together about some of the things that you learned or some of the things you experienced during your fast. Uh, let me just speak to one thing. I know as I said that, some of you are like, wait, isn't that the thing that Jesus said not to do? In Matthew 6, like, didn't he say it has to be done in secret? Uh, I would point you to the context of that passage. What Jesus is saying is that if your motive in fasting is to be recognized by others for fasting, that that should not be, you shouldn't be obvious about it in that way. Um, So if that's your motivation and you just want to fast with your life group so they'll pat you on the back and be like, good job, you did it, then maybe don't do it. Do it a different day and be completely secret about it. But I think it is fine to discuss what you are learning from your fast with people in your life group. I think that's a good way to kind of sync up a more individual practice like fasting with your community as a whole. So you could consider doing that. Again, totally up to you. Um, But during the time you are fasting devote the time that you would normally spend eating or even thinking about eating to some type of intentional Godward focus. So so that could be prayer, if you've got a setting at work or at school or at home that allows for that. Uh, It could be spending time in the scriptures. So if you're the type of person who struggles to set aside time to read the scriptures on a daily basis, the good news is by not eating, you've actually freed up anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour of your day. So you could use that time to spend in the scriptures. I think that could be a good practice to participate in. Um, you could go for a walk. Again, as long as it's not eight degrees outside, like it was a couple of weeks ago, you could go for a walk, put your AirPods in, listen to some worship music, reflect on who God is, spend some time in worship with him, You could do that. You could call a friend or a life group member and use that time to encourage them, to speak life into them, to speak prophetically into their life about things that you feel like God is telling you for them, for their benefit and for their growth. You could do that. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you could use the time you're not eating to be really intentional with your kids, to ask them about their day and the things that they're thinking about and the things that they're learning. You could Use that time to practice it that way. Uh, You might even want to just grab one of our bullet points from that list earlier and make that the focus for each fast that you participate in. So if there's sin that you need to acknowledge or repent of before God, talk to God about that during the time that you would be eating. If there's a particular grievous injustice in our world that is troubling you in some way, use the time that you would be eating to lament whatever that is and ask God to intervene. If you're deliberating on a big decision, seek God's guidance on that decision. If there's someone you know who is sick or struggling, pray for them or go and visit them during that time. The possibilities really are endless. Again, fasting can have a lot of different focuses, a lot of different emphases. But if you are motivated, join us in fasting one day a week during this series. Who knows what God might accomplish through it. So all of that info is available up now, as well as some book recommendations if you want to read more on the practice of fasting. All of that is available at citychurchdocs.com fasting. Take a look there, and then if you're willing, join us in this ancient practice from the way of Jesus. Let me pray for us.